Blog Talk Radio. God Rappel History. Fuck you like a bucket! To be the man, you gotta beat the man! We'll beat your work for being a little man! Atlanta GA Hotlanta is the Freebird town, man! Thank you. Thank you very, very much. A very spirited crowd here today at the Television Sports Arena. Welcome to the very first live version of GWH TV Talk on the GWH Network on Georgia Wrestling History. And normally the voice you would be hearing would be Kenny J, but this is Stoney, kind of, uh, kind of a little bit at the helm. But luckily, I don't have to worry about handling it by myself because I got, as usual, Will Wheeler is also on the line. What's up? And I got Mikey Garrett. How's it going? He loves it when I call him Mikey. See? Mikey. But we also have hanging out with us. Hanging out with us. Check this out. And And it's, you know, we talked about this last week, and I said, hey, how interesting is the day before the 16th anniversary of 9 11? We have not only the Patriot himself, Del Wilkes, in the house. How you doing, Del? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Good. Oh man, we are we are doing awesome. Been spending the day watching football. And so here in a minute we are going to talk to Dell. Dell's got a lot to talk about. And I'm sure he's pretty excited being from South Carolina. He's pretty excited. We're gonna talk about football. We're gonna talk about music. We're gonna talk about wrestling. We're gonna talk about all kinds of stuff. But first, we are gonna get rid of get, take care of the particulars. Um, as you know, if you really want to uh, check out good stuff, uh, uh, Georgia Wrestling History, Wrestling History in the Southeast, that would be Georgia, the Carolinas, Tennessee, Florida, Alabama, yada, 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 uh, gwhnewsandnotes.blogspot.com. You'll find all the information you need as well as upcoming events, indie events, great stuff. They have a Hall of Fame. Really, really cool stuff. So we are going to shoot through the birthdays. We are going to get through this quick because we want to talk to Dell. We want to make sure we use as much time as we can talking to Dell. So I'm going to shoot through uh, some stuff real quick, catch up on the history. Um, this week in birthdays, today, we want to wish a birth, uh, happy birthday to Johnny Walker, otherwise known as Mr. Wrestling 2, Billy Graham, happy birthday. Don Morocco, Steve Kern, Vivian St. John, Matt Morgan, Cyrus the Destroyer, and Trevor Murdoch. That's today. Birthday's today. Birthday's on the 11th. Tomorrow, ladies and gentlemen, his name is Paul Heyman. That's all you really need to say. On the 12th, Road Warrior Animal, Sal Renaro and Sean Schultz. On the 13th, happy birthday to Angelina Love. The 15th. Teddy Long, Rhett Titus, and Stan Robinson. And on the 16th, Phil LaFon, Ace Rockwell, and Tim D. So those are our birthdays. Um, you guys know how we usually do this. So, hey, um, be thinking in your brains what kind of birthday uh, wishes you want to send to them. And if you want to hit them up online, do so. Real quick, we're going to run through the history. 29 years ago today, in Philadelphia, PA, NWA United States Tag Team Champions, the Midnight Express. As Bobby Eaton and Stan Lane defeated Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard of the Four Horsemen to win the NWA World Tag Team Championship for the first 
in only time. The win for the Midnight Express made them the first duo to hold both the NWA United States and World Tag Team Championships simultaneously. Uh, 22 years ago on September 11th, WWF Monday Night Raw and WCW Monday Nitro aired opposite each other for the first time on Nitro. Uh, WCW World Champion Hulk Hogan defeated Lex Luger via disqualification. And uh, 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 Sabu was on it. Um, also, uh, he lost to somebody we've uh, been kind of talking to, Alex Wright. A bunch of other crazy stuff happened. Uh, yada, yada, yada. 35 years ago on September 12th, Sergeant Slaughter and Don Cronodal are awarded the NWA World Tag Team Championship. And it was a uh, NWA spin is that they defeated Giant Bob and Antonio and Yoke in a tournament. But, uh, no, didn't happen that way. The real story, they wanted to get the belts on somebody after Ole Anderson and Stan Hansen split up. So that was like the quick fix. 20 years ago on September 12th, NWA presented Clash of Champions 8, Fall Brawl 89 from the Carolina Coliseum. And, hey, check this out, Columbia, South Carolina. So the show, which did a solid 4-point story rating with 2.4 million home watching, is noted as uh, Terry Funk putting a beating on somebody. Who was that? Ric Flair with a bag over the head. Um, so um, everybody uh, pretty much thought he was trying to kill uh, old Rick there. So, And we all know by his recent uh, fight with illness, you can't kill Ric Flair. It's just impossible. So uh, 19 years ago today, or excuse me, 19 years ago on September 13th, WCW presented Fall Brawl War Games uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. The main event makes history on multiple levels. It's the last time the match is contested in a double cage. It's the last time War Games is contested on pay-per-view. And for the first time, pinballs, pinballs are allowed. And we got three more real quick. 19 years ago on September 14th on Nitro from Greenville, South Carolina, the Four Horsemen reform exactly one year to the day. They were dismantled at the hands of the NWO. 20 years ago on September 15th on Nitro from Charlotte, North Carolina, Kurt Henning defeated Mikey's favorite wrestler, Steve McMichael, to win the WCW United States Championship. And 21 years ago on September 16th on Nitro from Asheville, North Carolina, Sting turns his back on the, D, on the WCW. And we know how all that went. And that is our histories and birthdays for this week. Whew. Oh, thought I'd never get through that. I'm going to turn this over to Mike because we have a special guest right here with us. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Um, Dale, they kind of handed it over to me because I talked you up a lot. Um, I've kind of followed your career. I remember uh, the Trooper days when you used to come to the ring handing out, uh, I forget what you hit out. It was badges, wasn't it? Wasn't it a little police badge? It was, yeah. Little plastic badges. Okay. Right on. I remember that. Uh, I, I didn't have cable TV so I was 13 years old. I grew up in rural mil, middle Georgia, so I, I didn't know about the big stuff up north and WWF and, and all that till later on. So I watched you wrestle very early on. But first thing I wanted to ask you, because uh, I don't hear too many people ask, but I know you've uh, used your body from probably junior high till the day you wrestled your last match as your uh, main source of income. How you feeling these days, man? How's the body treating you? How's how's life? Is it a day to day thing? Is it a good days, bad days? How you feeling? Well, it is. It's exactly a good day, bad day thing. Uh, here, the last couple of weeks, there really haven't been many good days. 
you know, internally, uh, I'm in good health, uh, but it's just the, the joints. Uh, I've had 15 surgeries, and uh, I struggle. Uh, most days, I struggle, uh, especially with knees, and um, I've I've had both wrists operated on and fused, and and you know a lot of arthritic problems there. But uh, you know I'm alive, uh, other than having trouble walking and painfully walking around. Um, I'm very fortunate and very blessed. So I'll live with what I've done to my body. If I had to do it over again, I'd do it the exact same way. That's right. I I, I kind of figured you would. Um, I've seen the pictures. We kind of go back and forth on social media from time to time. Uh, we've, I think we've talked in messages and on comments and other stuff. Well, I've seen you've got a granddaughter decked out in Gamecock stuff. So just seeing that and seeing where you're at in your life from observing, I, I don't think you'd change a thing. Um, so how's the family? How's everybody going? It looks like you spent a little time with them lately. I do. I'm very blessed. Um, uh, I've got three adult children, uh, my oldest son, uh, he and his girlfriend have a six-month-old daughter. That's my youngest granddaughter. And uh, briefly, I'll tell you how, how bad they're eat up with Gamecock Athletics. Uh, her name is Garnet, uh, Garnet Wilts. If it was going to be a boy, they were going to name it Bryce Wilts after Williams Bryce Stadium where the Gamecocks played. Um, and then my daughter and her son, or her husband, excuse me, uh, blessed us with what is now my 18-month-old granddaughter. They're big Gamecock fans, and that was probably the one you saw decked out in her Gamecock outfit last week. And my youngest son, Alex, is uh, we're extremely proud of him. He's serving his country. He's based at uh, Fort Hood. He's in the Army. And uh, Alex is not married or dating anyone, but uh, maybe down the road he will be, and we'll get a grandchild from him. But we're very fortunate, very blessed two grandchildren, and every Sunday uh, I get to spend the day with my daughter and, and, and my granddaughter, my oldest granddaughter, and uh, so we've been with them today. matter of fact, I just took them back home and dropped them off, so we're doing good, man. Things couldn't be any better. That sounds good. That sounds good, and we appreciate your son's service for sure. And, uh, and that you. means that your your mom is a great-grandma. She's still taking that very good. Uh, she's still oh, pretty yeah. active these days. Listen, she yeah. is. She's the toughest human being I've ever met. She's 77 years old. She still works three days a week. Uh, wouldn't wow. have it any other way. And uh, uh, my sister, who is 40, is special needs. And, uh, of course, my mom takes care of her. Uh, and uh, But, uh, yeah, she's happy about being uh, – she's got six grandkids and two great-grandkids, and she loves it. She loves being a mother. She loves being a grandmother and a great-grandmother. Uh, sounds like a tight-knit Southern South Carolina family, Dale. It is. Yes. It does. Well, let me ask you this. Um, a lot of people know your wrestling career and we're a wrestling podcast, but Will and I and Sony, we're all big football fans. Um, before I ask you about the transition from Irmo to uh, to USC, how that happened, um, and uh, let me not say USC, uh, South Carolina. People mistake that. Um, there you go. I was, yeah, people was like, USC? But uh, just wanted to know, um, a lot of people out there, they, they, they know the term all-pro. Um, and there's a lot of all-pros out there. And you are, what's the word, uh, consensus, non-consensus all-pro? A consensus all-American. 
All American. Okay. Can you explain to the people the difference in that? And whenever they hear a guy is just an All American, can you explain to yeah. them what what it goes? Go ahead. Absolutely. Um, we've had several All Americans at the University of South Carolina, first team All Americans. But the difference between a first team and a consensus. Now there are more All American teams today, or more um, people that have an All American team. Uh, but when I was playing football at South Carolina from 1980 to 1984, there were five different sources that had an All-American team. The Associated Press, the United Press International, Sporting News, uh, Kodak All-American team, and the Walter Camp All-American team. And to be a consensus, you had to be a first-team All-American on three of those five. And I was a Kodak All-American first team, a Walter Camp All-American first team, Associated Press All-American first team. And uh, so I was on three of the five. Now, there are a few more All-American teams today, but still you have to be on a consent. You know, you've got to be on more of them to be a consensus. There have only been four consensus All-Americans in the history of Gamecock football. The first was George Rogers. Uh, our Heisman Trophy winner in 1980, myself in 1984. Uh, I was the first native South Carolinian to be a consensus All-American at South Carolina. And then recently we had Melvin Ingram and Jadavion Clowney. So I'm proud to be a part of those other three, to be just one of four in the history of the program. That's a big accomplishment. That's why I kind of wanted to explain to the to the listeners like you're not all Americans kind of thrown around a lot, you know, especially when you're talking about an NFL player. The broadcasters go, "Yeah, he was a former All American from here or there," and and uh, it, it takes a little bit more to be uh, an All American like you were. Um, I'm gonna ask one more football question. I'm gonna turn it over to Will for. I'm sure he has a couple more before we get into your transition to wrestling in the early days. But um, Irmo High School. Whenever you were going, at what point did you start shooting your your sights for for college? Did you always know it was Gamecock? Did you have people fighting over you? Did you, you know, how how was the transition? Did did you know in your junior year? Was it your senior year before you got kind of noticed and scouted? Was uh, how did that work out, Dale? No, it actually started. Now I only went to Irmo my last two years of high school. Um, I was born and raised in Columbia, but in 1973, my dad moved our family to Georgia. We lived there five years, from 73 to 78. We moved back to Columbia in 78, and that's when I went to Irmo the last two years. But when we were in Georgia, I was playing football at Calhoun High School in Calhoun, Georgia. I actually started as a freshman on the varsity team. So Clemson um, uh, started contacting me when I was a freshman and, um, you know, thought that I had the potential to play for them down the road. So I'd been recruited since I was a freshman in high school. Carolina came on board my, uh, my junior year and I had scholarship offers from most of the major schools in the South. Uh, but for me being a South Carolina native, it was going to be Carolina or Clemson um, group of Gamecock fan, Gamecock family, but I had verbally committed to go to Clemson. Uh, Danny Ford was the head coach there, and I'm still good friends with Coach Ford, and I thought the world of him. And uh, I gave a verbal commitment to go to Clemson. But before, by the time signing day came around, I had changed my mind and signed 
with the University of South Carolina and never regretted it. It was four of the best years of my life. Sounds like a sounds like a good choice. Well, I'm gonna let Will hop in here. He's our he's our resident football guy, so I'm gonna let him get in a couple of questions, and then maybe maybe he can lead you into your uh, into how you went from the 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 football to the wrestling. Will you there? I'm right there, brother. All right, I'm, I'm gonna let Will drill you a little bit, Dale, and we'll get back. Morning, Dale. Hey, man, how you doing? I'm good. Um, one thing about you, since you you played at Carolina from uh, 80 to 84, I happened to have – I worked for – we had an arena football team called the Augusta Stallions. And uh, the last – in 2000 during the 2001 season, I actually had the privilege of working with two of your former teammates at uh, South Carolina and Dave Poinsett and uh, Mike Holt. What were they oh, like? Oh, good guy. Awesome. I, fi- I mean, I figured. I loved working with Poinsett. He really kind of – Got me, he he got a guy. He was the one that actually got me the coaching bug as well as Mike Holt. So I thanked him for it, so to speak. Well, when I was a senior, Poinsett backed me up uh, in '84, my senior year. He was the guy that played behind me. Now he didn't play a lot that year. I, I think in the 12 games that we played that year, I think I took every snap in probably 10 of those. Um, so he didn't get to play a lot. But in 85, the year after I left, he became the starting right guard. And uh, he's, he's a fun guy. He, he's crazy. He's goofy. Uh, he's a lot of fun. Uh, my, oh, yeah. Uh, and I'm still good friends with both of those guys today. I'm in contact with Mike a lot more than I am with Poinsett. Uh, Mike was an unbelievable football player. I, uh, oh, with that. I, think, he's, I think he's greatly underrated at South Carolina. I, I would take him over any quarterback that's ever played here. He had a cannon for an arm and was as good a scrambler as anybody I've ever seen. And uh, just a fabulous football player and had a very good lengthy arena football career and is now an associate athletic director at Newberry College in Newberry, South Carolina. And I've tried to drum my athletes to Newberry, trying to see if I could see if Hole could put, put in a good word for him or something, but no avail. <laughs> he, he could definitely look at the air. I'll just have to keep badgering him, though. I don't know if I've got anybody. There you go. But I can keep on him. Keep on him. Okay. And also, too, when you were in the uh, – I know I'd seen on Twitter the other day how you had your NFL paycheck from the Falcons. So, uh, And what year were you with the Falcons? I signed with the uh, I signed with Tampa Bay out of South Carolina. I signed with the Bucks in '85, and uh, then I was I was traded to the Falcons in '86, and then the Falcons released me prior to the start of the '86 season. So '85, '86 was my brief NFL career. Things have okay. changed when I signed when I signed with the Bucks in 1985. My signing bonus was five thousand dollars. Wow, yeah, that's a, that's what? unreal. That's unbelievable compared to the money today. <laughs> yes, it is. And after you had gotten released by the Falcons, what had you done, um, work wise, career wise, and when did the wrestling bug hit? Well, I grew up a wrestling fan. Um, outside of Gamecock athletics and especially Gamecock football, uh, the thing that I love the most and followed was, was pro wrestling. So Gamecock sports, Gamecock football, and pro wrestling 
just uh, dominated my thought process. And I uh, I went to my first show, uh, live show in Columbia at the Township Auditorium in 1971. And um, but it wasn't until I was in college that um, I really started seriously considering going into pro wrestling as a career. A buddy of mine that attended and graduated from the Citadel, the military school in Charleston, um, we had been, we talked about going into wrestling, and I decided that whenever football ended for me, that I would then pursue a career in pro wrestling. So once the Falcons released me, I came back to Columbia and got a regular job uh, in sales for an industrial supply company. I went to a job sites and called on contractors, mechanical contractors, construction companies, and things like that. And uh, But I also, at night, was going to um, the fabulous Moolah School here in Columbia and training at night uh, to try to uh, get, you know, get my wrestling career started. And uh, I think I was in her school maybe about six months, and uh, I quit my full-time job and then devoted more of my time to wrestling it was sporadic you know your bookings were sporadic you might get booked 15 times one month 20 times one month the next month it might be you know 10 7 8 times so i worked as a bouncer while i was uh, uh in the infancy the very beginning of my wrestling career just to help you know subsidize my income and i will say one thing about you dale uh, if i was at a club i would not mess with you man i'm gonna say that right now i would not mess with you well well, a lot of people were different. Uh, a lot of them uh, tried and challenged. And uh, I tell you, I worked in a very, very popular club when I was here in Columbia. And uh, we we had an awful lot of incidents, an awful lot of fights and skirmishes. But not everybody felt the same way you did. And so uh, there were a lot of occasions to, you know, to prove them wrong. Awesome. I mean, just the fact that you had the uh... – that you had got trained by Moolah, that just that that in it, that in itself was awesome. I mean, just the what she what she brings to the what she brought to pro wrestling is unreal. I mean, they don't real most people don't they see Moolah as the champion for thirty years, but they don't realize what the value she had as a trainer. I just and I'm glad you brought that up, Dale. So, without further ado, I'm gonna I appreciate your time on the football team, and if I hear from Mike, you know I'm gonna tell tell him you said hello. They'll be shocked, and also too. Um, my AD at Lakeside, Jody Hilly, is a he was a big Gamecock fan, and he was especially a big Dell Wilkes fan. So when I see you next time, I'm gonna tell him you said hi. Well, tell him I said hello. You bet. All right, Mike. Dell, when you say uh, people didn't feel the same way, I, I can only believe that they saw you and uh, over the course of the night and consuming more alcohol, they would be. You know what? I think I can take this guy. Is that kind of how yeah, that happened? It, it was. Uh, you know, I'm not the first person to say this, but alcohol will make a brave, brave man out of you. And uh, now it doesn't <laughs> make you a it, it doesn't make you a better man, but it'll make a it'll make you a lot braver, and uh, and it'll get you in some messes that you know that you probably didn't want to get into. It will. It definitely will. I I've been in that line of work for quite a while in the clubs and stuff as a concert promoter and. Oh Lord, gosh, we could all say stories about that, but but uh, so um, first of all, I just want to say I think I think Moolah should have a statue in Columbia for holding the belt for thirty years, training and and all that stuff. I think she should be she should have a gold bronze statue downtown. 
Well, uh, I don't disagree with you, but if you were to go to her grave site, she's basically got that there. It's a mausoleum almost, and it's uh, it's quite it's quite a quite a structure. Huh? I have not seen that. Well, the podcast crew will have to take a trip up there and and check that out. Tony, you got, any, Tony, you, got you got anything you waiting to to ask Dale? Well, you know, I'm thinking if we take a trip to Columbia for that, maybe Dell can, like, uh, you know, give us a tour. Yeah. Oh, if absolutely. It, if... We can we can hang out great. with Dell, and, and and I love Columbia. Yeah, Columbia is from Augusta. It's a great place. We like to go. Um, um, I know me and some of my friends. We like to go up there for uh, you know. A, Anytime you get bored, it's just an, you know an hour away. We jump up there, and I know I jump up there a lot of times if I just want some different coffee. So, <laughs> well, uh, speaking about Moolah, let me let me just talk about her for for a minute here. Um, you go right ahead. Moolah was a, a fascinating individual. The school that she had and ran was basically geared toward girls. She had her big nice home on her property. Then she had a pond, and uh, around this pond were little cottages that she had built, maybe seven or eight of them. And the girls that stayed there. Uh, they paid to train in Moolah's ring and have Moolah train them, and then they paid to stay in these cottages. And then Moolah got them booked, and Moolah took part of their money uh, to get them booked. And uh, she really had quite the uh, quite the setup there. Uh, I come along, and, and she had never had a guy that had come through there that ever had any success. There were guys that had been through there, but none of them had really ever had any type of a career. But she was a sweetheart um, from the exterior part of it. She was she talked to you like a Waffle House waitress. She called everybody sweetie, honey, good looking. Hey, baby, what's up, honey child? What's up, good looking? What can I do for you today? And you felt like you were in a Waffle House, but she was tough as nails. When Moolah came along in wrestling, it wasn't female friendly like it is today. She started in the business back in the 50s. And most of those guys resented women. They didn't want women a part of it. And it was a tough, tough business for a woman to break into. And it took a tough, tough woman to do what she did. And uh, she fit the bill. She was a, she was a sweetheart, but she was a tough, tough woman physically and from a business standpoint as well. Did y'all ever cross paths uh, when your time uh, up north in the WWE? When she was doing the uh, angles with Mark Henry and Moolah and May Young, did, did y'all did we all at the same time in the same place ever? No, th- that angle came after I had retired. You know, due to the numerous injuries I had. Now right. we would cro- we would cross paths here in Columbia, and we talked regularly on the phone. As a matter of fact, I talked to Moolah the week before she went into the hospital for the shoulder surgery which she never, she never recovered. She never came out of the hospital for that. Um, I, I talked to uh, May Young was living with her then. And uh, so I talked to her in May that day and it wasn't, but probably maybe four days later she passed away. Uh, but I kept in contact with her a lot, but we never crossed paths in that setting that you described. Right. Let me ask you one more thing. You may not know. Um, I heard, you know how you can hit YouTube and you can see, 20,000 wrestling podcasts and some of the stuff right. you hear you have to wonder how much of it's true or not um 
did is do you know if there's any truth to the fact that Moolah kind of had her own say in who she would drop the belt to or whatever, and it took her years to uh, finally agree and find somebody she liked in Wendy Richter to to drop the belt to. Is that anything you know about? No, I've heard that. I, I never actually discussed that with Lillian, but knowing her the way I knew her, and I knew her very well, that wouldn't surprise me uh, if that was the case. Um, She did, I mean, she called a lot of her own shots. Uh, I know Vince Sr. thought a lot of her, uh, and Vince Jr. did as well. And um, we never discussed that, but that would not surprise me one bit if, if, you know, if it were that way. Gotcha. Well, when you came out of her school, and and, uh, what was, did did you go try out? Did you get an offer? Where where did you end up first? And you were not the Patriot, uh, for those that don't know. Um, you actually wrestled even before the trooper as Dale Wilk, correct? I did. Uh, the guy that I told you about that went to the Citadel, uh, we started out at Moolah's um, as the Untouchables. We bought a couple of fedoras and a pair of sunglasses, and we thought that made us wrestlers, and we were the Untouchables. Well, this has sort of been a constant throughout my career. I guess people were trying to tell me something. She then got the idea of, of a tag team called the Mask Grapplers. So she put hoods on us. And uh, I um, we wrestled under the hood for a while. And then um, I met Wahoo. One of her shows, she, she would work shows around the Midlands of South Carolina, small shows, county fairs. Uh, you know, bars, honky-tonks, you know, VFW places like that, National Guard armories, never many people there. But she had a show that she was running in Columbia, and Wahoo was working for the AWA at the time, but he had his permanent home in Charlotte. He would live in Minneapolis for a lot of the year, but come home to Charlotte quite a bit. And he had a couple of weeks off from the AWA, so he was at his home in Charlotte, and Moolah booked him on one of our shows, and I met him, and that's what started opening some doors for me. Uh, you know, he he had us, my partner and I. He brought us up to Minneapolis uh, to work for Vern in the AWA, and that was sort of the first break for me. Right. So AWA is. Uh, did you hit the road with AWA, or was you just kind of local? Well, the first time we went up. Uh, we just, I was, that's when I was wrestling as Dell Wilkes. It didn't work out for my buddy. Uh, you know, they just told him they didn't think that he really had a future in the business. So they sent him back home to Columbia, but the AWA at the time, really the only thing it had going for it was TV. They had the ESPN deal Monday through Friday, four to five o'clock. Uh, and they run some spot shows, um, they didn't do a lot. They didn't run a lot. They were really on life support. They were they were struggling to keep the doors open at that time. And um, so I came back to Columbia, took a few months off. They took a few months off. And then when they brought me back up, that's when I then started working as the trooper. Oh, God. Trying to figure out what the noise is. Somebody moving a phone around? Okay, we're good. And uh, when you came out with the Trooper, whose idea was that? Was that yours and creative, or did they kind of hand that to you? 
No, uh, there's a story to that as well, and it also involves Moolah and one of the guys that was working for her. She had about four or five guys that would hang around her place here in Columbia and work out in the ring and train. And any of the shows she ran, you know, she'd use those guys. And they would also go up and do TV for the WWF occasionally. They would go up as enhancement guys, or they were once called job guys, but they would go out in a minute or two, you know, put one of the superstars over. And um, and so there was a guy that his his real job, he was a deputy sheriff um, here in one of our local counties or one of our counties right outside of Columbia. That was his nine-to-five job. And when he would wrestle for Moolah, he would literally use his uh, deputy sheriff outfit, and he worked as a super enforcer. And uh, after I had got back to the AWA the second time, he called me one day and asked me if he would, if he said, if I send you a videotape of some of my matches, would you mind giving it to Wahoo or to Vern or Greg Ganya and just let them take a look at it and see if there's anything there they would like? I said, sure, send it to me. So he sent me the tape. I gave it to Wahoo. Wahoo gave it to Vern and Vern and Wahoo and Greg looked at it. And about a week later, they called me up and wanted me to come to the office. They said, you know, the tape you gave us on your buddy back in South Carolina, well, he's horrible. He has no career here. He needs to remain a deputy sheriff. That's probably what he does best. But we do like the character. But we're going to tweak it a little bit and call it the trooper. And so that's how that idea came around. They, uh, that was Vern, Greg, and Wahoo. Gotcha. And then, uh, well, from there, from the AWA, how, how long did you last there? And if I'm not mistaken... Uh, I don't know if it was luck or you might have seen or heard some stuff backstage or seen the writing on the wall, but you kind of got out of there right in the nick of time, didn't you? Well, I actually stayed till the very end, really. Um, DJ Peterson and I were the very last tag team champions in the history of the company. And um, they they closed their doors. And then, I, you know, I worked a lot of independent shows then. And... Um, I, uh, I actually, Vince brought me up to New York for some dark matches. He had some interest in signing me then, but it didn't work out. Now, this was in the, this was maybe around 90 or something like that. But then we heard about the Global Wrestling Federation that was going to be this upstart company that was going to have the same contract with ESPN Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 o'clock. And once that company got established and everything was set up, they FedExed me a plane ticket to fly to Dallas for the very first global TV taping ever. So I packed my trooper gear, and off to Dallas I went. And um, we all stayed at the same hotel. And uh, so about four hours before we were to go over to the building, the sportatorium, and start taping for this upstart company, the Global Wrestling Federation, I got a call from Bill Eady. And uh, Bill said, I need you to come over to my room. I got Joe Petticino in here with me and Bonnie Blackstone, and we want to talk to you about something. So I walked over to Bill's room, and that's when they then presented me with this Patriot character idea. Bonnie opened up an old grocery bag, one of them brown paper grocery bags. She opened it up and unfolded it and pulled out the tights, the trunks, the mask, and they just laid this thing out to me and what they wanted to do with it, and they wanted me to be the guy to do it, and I said, yep, and uh, that changed my career drastically. And the Patriot was born that day. That day, absolutely. And and their idea was 
this was, I think, 91 when we were involved in Desert Storm and Iraq had gone into Kuwait and occupied Kuwait and President Bush and our military in to liberate Kuwait and drive Iraq out. And patriotism was at a very high level, a fever pitch level. And wrestling's always done a good job of taking advantage of things like that. So that gave them the idea for a patriotic character. And uh, they wanted me to be the guy to do it. And uh, that night when I walked down the aisle in the sportatorium, nobody had ever seen that character before. And that place erupted. It had not only had anything to do with me, I just think it had everything to do with the political climate in the country at that time. And uh, yeah. I could tell by the response we got the first night that we were we were on to something good. And you know what? They always say whenever your character or your gimmick or your stick or whatever the boys in the back want to call it, whatever your character is, when it closely resembles your personality, it works better. And, Dale, you are truly a patriotic guy. So well, I, I, can see that. I appreciate I can, that. I can see that working now. No, anybody that knows you could could never say, oh, that guy doesn't care or anything like that. But I got one more question. I'm going to turn it over to Stoney and uh, let them ask some questions because I feel like I'm hogging it up. But um, when you were uh, up north in the WWF at the end of the career right before you left, you have had the feud with um, the Bret Hart thing, uh, Canada versus USA, and that got mm-hmm. big. Um, that that was really, really kind of big. But then all of a sudden it kind of just died and didn't go anywhere. Um, was there a reason for that? Uh, you weren't actually hurt at the time. Um, yeah, I was. I've heard yeah. talk. Oh, okay. The only no, person I've ever was... heard really talk about it was Jim Cornette, and he it, it kind of didn't set well with him. I was just wondering your take on it. No, I was I was very seriously hurt. Um, I was hurt when I arrived in the WWF. I, I hid it from Vince. Um, when I had to take my physical, I had a doctor gimmick up the physical, basically lie on the physical. I had blown my knee out in Japan. I had major knee issues. I had ripped my tricep tendon off my bone twice. And I was um, say twice. I'd already... Yeah, so I, I, when I got there, I had a tricep that wasn't even attached to a bone. I had a knee that was blown out, and I've since had eight surgeries on that knee, two replacements on that knee. So I never got hurt in the WWF. I was damaged goods when I got there, and uh, I just couldn't. It wasn't because of anything other than my body could not continue to go. Right. Well, you had been banging it around from the gridiron to the squared circle. I'm sure even at Moolah's camp you – we're taking pretty significant bumps. Um, I said I have one more question. Here's my last one. I'm going to turn it over. Uh, when Kurt Angle come out the Monday after WrestleMania as the GM and, and you got to hear your music again and realized you'd probably hear it every week for quite a while, how did you feel about that? Oh, it's it's good to hear the music. And, uh, listen, they gave me that music. It wasn't mine. They gave it to me. It was their idea. And it's the same way Kurt got it. And uh, so – it's uh, I, I never had a problem with it. Uh, uh, it's good to hear it, and uh, glad that he could incorporate it into, you know, to who he is and what he does. Gotcha. All right. Well, I'm gonna turn it over to Stoney, who hadn't got a chance to really talk much. Um, and then maybe Will has some more stuff. But uh, Stoney, you there? Oh yeah, I'm here. I'm here. And you know, um, um, anybody that knows me knows that that in addition to Mike, we're kind of like the music guys here. And um, so I kind of like like to kind of 
you know, a lot of time you go you go on these podcasts and everybody asks the same questions. And you know, he was just talking about your promo music. I was kind of curious talking to Mike earlier. If that had been your decision, do you have maybe a song or a type of song that may you might have felt was more suited towards the character of the Patriot? You know, I've really never thought about that. What they did was they they came up with creative came up with several different songs that they played for me and to let me listen to. And um, they said, you know, give us a couple of your favorites. And I'd never heard any of them. It was things that, you know, they had designed and created, I guess. And uh, that was one of the two that I picked. I just liked the, I just liked the music. I liked the, the rhythm of it and just the way it was. Uh, so, you know, I never really thought about that. Would I choose anything else? Was there a song that I would have, you know, picked? I mean, it's, I guess it's easy to say born in the USA or something like that, but I really never given it much thought. Cool, cool, cool. I was, I was, uh, another thing I was curious about is, uh, is when we were getting ready for this, also being the music guy, um, going on YouTube, hearing other other Patriot intros pre WWF. And um, I kind of always, me personally, I've always preferred like kind of like the old school uh, WCW kind of like eighties, nineties, what do they, what do they call kind of like the, uh, the inspirational stuff. Was there ever any talk of possibly pulling some of that out or, or maybe using something that you were familiar with? People were familiar with you before WWF as as your music for that. No, uh, not really. Uh, when I was in Japan, they did basically the same thing that every other company did. They laid out some different tracks for me, and what do you think of this? What do you think of that? Well, that stinks. I wouldn't want to use that, but I like that. That's a possibility. Uh, so that was done that way at every stop along the way. Um, and um, I don't even remember what they used in WCW. I don't have a clue. I remember what we <laughs> used in Japan, uh, but uh, I don't remember what we used in WCW. Now, yeah, I'm a, the, the I'm a WCW big, music, I'm a big rem- music buff. Oh, there you go. What's that? Well, so you, know, then, that, you know, maybe this that would be a good chance. Maybe maybe we'll take a little, little kind of like side side route maybe because you know like i said a lot of times these podcasts will ask you the same questions so being a music buff okay forget about the wrestling what does del what does del wilkes listen to when he's just chilling then i like a lot of things i have a pretty wide broad thing there of music spectrum of music I like classic rock. I like music, you know, from the 60s, 70s, 80s. I like classic country music, and I love old southern gospel music. Um, uh, But I guess my favorite would be the classic country. And, and, And when I say that, I think a lot of people think of Haggard and Jones and Willie and Waylon and Cash. And I like all those guys, but I'm a big Ernest Tubb fan. I'm a big Webb Pierce fan. Uh, Hank Snow guy. Uh, I love that stuff. I love it. And uh, as a matter of fact, today I was listening to a lot of Webb Pierce. And um, I-, I love those older guys. I like Hank Williams. 
junior and senior. Um, so I love classic country music and classic rock, but I, I guess my favorite would be classic country. I love the stuff that the Gaithers do uh, with old traditional Southern gospel music. I love to listen to a lot of that as well. Well, I can I can imagine growing up in the South. Uh, I know when I was growing up, a lot of uh, speaking of like the Southern gospel, a lot of our things that would be in addition to, of course, watching wrestling on TV. We would also we would watch the quartets on yes. on Sunday mornings, the old gospel quartets back in the the seventies. I mean, I'm sure they go back to the sixties and in the eighties. Um, matter of fact, at our church, this we're blessed to have the 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 traveling bird family. Um, at our church on Sunday mornings, and we always get to hear these these great stories. So I, I, I would have to figure in Augusta, Georgia, if we were watching things like the Parade of Quartets, I would have to imagine that as close as Columbia, you you guys had those on Sunday mornings as well. We did. I love that. I love that Southern gospel quartet music. I like the Goodmans and and the Inspirations and things like that. But now. Uh, to top it all off, though, and uh, I am an absolutely mark for anything Elvis. Uh, I love Elvis Uh-oh. gospel music. Yeah, I'm a big Elvis, big Elvis mark. Love his music. Man, man, man. I'm, you know, it's kind of funny. This is, is like falling into my weekend. We went and saw uh, the musical 56 last night at the old Imperial Theater based on the year 1956, the year that Elvis broke. So, um, and of course, mm-hmm. you know, when you sit there and talk to the people, you know, a lot of the people that were older people that remember when Elvis broke. So, um, it, it's just, just, just kind of like when, kind of like talking to wrestlers from back then, when you hear the stories and hear them talk about stuff like that, it's, uh, the history is just, uh, for some people it's, it's boring, but for, for, for me and, and Will and, and Mike and I'm sure a bunch of other people, uh, hearing people that were there and, or, or, or have a deep root in the experience, um, it, it's, it's a great listen. And, and it's why we are glad we have the opportunity to have guests such as you come on and talk about these things. So Elvis, heck yeah, you, none better. Yeah. Um, my sister, she's 40 um, and she just can't stand Elvis. And, I'm like, do you realize you're 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 basically you're borderline communist here. I mean, you need to check yourself <laughs> if you don't like Elvis. I mean, really, how can you be kin to me? I mean, we I don't know. There may have been, you know, that uh, that postman that came by one day, and but uh, no, yeah, I just find it un-American not to be an Elvis fan. Did she That's not very just like Elvis? Or did she actually hate him? What's that now? Does she not like Elvis? Is then like I can't stand Elvis, or does she just not get into Elvis? She can't stand him. She, I mean, oh. she does not like him. And uh, I mean, for my money, there's nothing better being a Southern guy. And it just yeah. gives. I've been listening to it forty years. American trilogy. You can't get any better than that. Incorporate no. Dixie into that song. Oh, man, that's you can't top that. Some people though, they just have this one. One thing they don't get into that everybody else does, Stoney happens to be a huge Kiss fan, and I think they're one of the most overrated bands ever. And Mike, and Mike I happens to be a huge Mondo McMichael fan, and I can't stand him. No, I'm not. No. 
that that's an ongoing joke, Dale. If you listen to the show, you know my disdain for Steve McMichaels and what he brought to wrestling. I don't like to bash anybody, but that guy uh, in the ring, he did not impress me, and on the mic commentating, he did not impress me. Well, I'm going to fall into your camp on that. As a football player, I loved watching him play. A tough, there you go. tough, bad dude. But I thought he was the drizzling runs as a wrestler. Yeah. Well, thank gosh. That's nice. <laughs> well, him, him being a football hey. guy, I thought I might be saying something really, really bad to Dale Wilson. No, I, I was no fan of him in, in the wrestling business either. But totally different, just mad respect for him on the football field. Yeah. Oh, there you go. And it's okay. Well, Dell, tell us though, though, uh, if, who would you say were your maybe your favorite or some of your favorite in-ring performers that were originally football players? Well, um, there's probably I like Ron Simmons. Uh, Ron is truly one of the greatest defensive linemen that ever played football. Ron Simmons was, was un, he was phenomenal as a football player. I like Ron as a person. I like him in the ring. Uh, Stan Hansen, a good football player at West Texas, uh, good in the ring. Uh, Terry Funk, same thing. Um, you know, it just seems to be something about football players. I think they have a toughness about them that a lot of the guys don't. Listen, you don't have to be a tough guy to be in the world of pro wrestling. It's a work, okay? So you're not out there involved in a shoot, uh, you know, outcome. It's a work. It's entertainment. But there are some guys that truly, I mean, are just, they have nothing about them from an intestinal fortitude standpoint, from a toughness standpoint. But every guy that ever played football with that I work with, and also Wahoo, I mean, how could I overlook Wahoo? But they were genuinely tough. That's something that football does to you, that it ingrains in you a mental and a physical toughness that, um, you know, a lot of these guys that don't have that never were involved in that sport. Now, you don't have to have been a good football player to be a great wrestler. I get that. But uh, the tougher guys were, were, were the football players, come from football backgrounds. I think Mike's favorite football – I think Mike's favorite ex-football player that went on to – wrestled professionally with Goldberg. Yeah, well, oh, there's – I don't know if that's – you know, you're you're serious about that, but I don't know what He's kind not. of career Goldberg had as a football player. I'm not really sure. Um, I guess my favorite would be Wahoo, my overall favorite. Yeah. Dale, whenever you're an ex-football player – Whenever you're an ex-football player and you come in as a big superstar like Goldberg, I just expect your cardio and stamina to to allow you to go over six minutes in the ring. That's just me. Well, I I don't mind making a comment on that. I don't think it had anything to do, and I may be wrong. I'm not sure it had anything to do with – I don't think it had anything to do with cardio and stamina. I think it was all about ability. Um, Yeah, and ring. Yes, and – no doubt he was a football player. He's got everything to prove that he was a football player, but he doesn't move like a football player. Uh, he was rigid and stiff-looking to me. Now, the guy was over like $10 million. I get that. But just to watch the guy move around, he just did not have that athletic movement about him that, you know, lent itself to 
to, you know, wow, he must have been a good football player. I just thought he was rigid, stiff, and didn't move well. Yeah, I don't know why Stoney's banging on me today. And in a minute, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you about his Brock Lesnar poster in his bedroom. But. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what, what What I find funny is, is is we are talking about football, but we have the coach hasn't even said anything. Come on, Will, you got to have some <laughs> questions or something to say here about football, dude. Actually, I do, uh, Dale. Um, I appreciate you liking my fitness posts on Facebook, Dale, and Twitter. Appreciate that. But um, yes. I'm curious to know, um, when you played, the, today's football is emphasizing with weight training. When you played at South Carolina, how big was weight training in preparation for the season and during the season? And what were your highest bench, squat, and deadlifts when you were uh, playing? Well, weightlifting was a big deal when I was at Carolina. Uh, Keith Kephart was our strength and conditioning coach, and uh, he was president of the uh, Strength and Conditioning Coaches Association. He was one of the more – him and Boyd Epley that was at Nebraska at the time were really two of the pioneers in weight training for college football players. So it was a big deal for us, Uh, and a lot of emphasis was placed on it. Uh, we didn't, we did deadlifts. Uh, we didn't do heavy deadlifts. Um, I had, uh, my best bench was in, and this is free weights. This is, uh, not a machine. This is sliding 45 pound ringers on the end of a 35 pound bar. Um, my best bench was 505. Uh, my best squat was seven, was 705. 505. Wow. Now, and, and there was somebody else I left out. And, you know, when you've been in the business a long time, like I've been around it, sometimes you forget, guys. Uh, I'm going to tell you somebody that to me was more impressive than Wahoo from a football weightlifting wrestling standpoint. And he was the best friend I ever had in the wrestling business, and that was Doug Furness. Uh, Doug played football, football at Tennessee. And Doug is legitimately one of the greatest power lifters that ever lived. He was the first power lifter to ever total over 2,600 in a meet. And at the time, he had done it twice. He was the only guy to ever do it twice. And Doug and I, when I worked in Japan the six years that I worked there, Doug and I were together day and night. We were, like, joined at the hip. We were best friends. And so I thought I was a good weightlifter and considered myself a good weightlifter form, technique, strength, the amount of weight I could lift. But Doug, was in, he was a different beast altogether. Doug had a 985 squat. He had a 605 bench, and he had an eight-something deadlift, maybe close to 900 deadlift. Doug was a freak and, uh, and a tr- maybe the best athlete I've ever been around as well, too. So um, oh. Doug Furness was impressive. He was phenomenal. I mean, him and the he was phenomenal, phenomenal look. And I mean, just hearing the powerlifting stories. And now, I look back on his matches at you on YouTube and seeing him on TV and just reading the stories. And I'm like, wow. I mean, this guy was unreal. And I mean, he was what was he? What was he? What Doug's weight about two seventy? Well, he when he was powerlifting, he was two seventy five. But when he wrestled, Doug was more around 260, probably 255, 260. Yeah, I, I, I think you were. Wow. Unreal, man. But he, 
Yeah, he, he, he was phenomenal. Doug was – I've never been around anybody like Doug, uh, just a, a freak athlete, but, but more importantly, just a better guy. He was one of the dearest friends I ever had. That's great. That's awesome. That's just so awesome. It's crazy how football and, and wrestling tie together a lot more than people realize. Yep, you're exactly right. It does a lot more than people know. Especially in the South. Yep, yeah, it, it does. does. It does. Hey, Dale, I got a. Uh, I guess I'll be Debbie Downer here. I got a, a question I, I wanted to ask you. Um, uh, Bam Bam Terry Gordy, if I'm yep. correct, you were on the flight. He was on whenever he. Uh, I, I, I call it a coma, I guess. Um, yeah. Kind of OD'd or whatever. For the people that don't know, they were headed overseas to wrestle. And uh, what was it, Dale? Was it a 16 hour flight? Well, when I would go to Japan, here's here's the way I'll answer that question. I always flew from Columbia to Atlanta. 35, 40 minute flight from Atlanta right. to LA. That's a four hour flight. And LA to Tokyo was another 12 hours. So, yeah, it was a little over 16 hours combined. Now, Terry lived in Chattanooga, so he always flew from Chattanooga to Atlanta. So I would always see Terry on every tour at about 7, 7.20 in the morning in Atlanta at the airport. And that day, Connie, his wife, walked him down to the gate. Now, things were much different back then than they are today. You know, your friends, your family could walk to the gate with you. And he was messed up already. And, And I'll never forget, it's chilling just to relive it she said guys he is he's been on a roll for about a week now so good luck in handling him and he was as messed up as a barrel of monkeys at seven o'clock in the morning and i actually sat beside terry from atlanta to la and uh he was in and out uh from the flight from atlanta to la he would be out and he would come around and he would be awake but really not coherent, uh, you know, just couldn't hardly talk. He was on pain pills and somas and Xanax and things like that. But what was really kicking him was the somas and the Xanax. And then we got to L.A., and uh, we had a hard time getting him on the plane uh, in L.A. We actually had to put him in a wheelchair, and uh, he was a mess then. But once we took off for Tokyo from Atlanta, I mean from L.A., not long into that flight, Terry lapsed into a coma. And uh, when we landed in Tokyo, uh, the old Japan bus would always be there to pick us up and take us to our hotel there in Tokyo. But they had to, uh, we had to, some, we got him on the, no, they got him on a, uh, uh, an ambulance on a gurney and took him to, the, uh, to a hospital there in Tokyo, and the bus followed. And I think they were thinking that maybe they get him in the emergency room, they get a, get a doctor around him, and maybe they're going to be able to revive him and, and get him awake. And so we're going to keep the bus here with the guys on the bus. We sat there four hours and uh, before they finally decided to get us to the hotel and that Terry was not going to, you know, regain consciousness. And I think maybe a week, ten days into that tour, he finally did. They flew Connie over there. And then they flew him back home with Connie. But uh, Terry never recovered from that. Now, I know he worked. He tried to come back to Japan and work. I know he was in the WWF. 
but he was never the same guy. He never, he never ever got over that. He was a lot slower and, in his speech, everything. He never recovered. Before that, the reason maybe that they followed y'all followed him to the hospital and everything. Correct me if I'm wrong because uh, I wasn't around, but he had had a couple episodes like that, and it and it kind of kicked out pretty easily. No, you're spot on. He had. This wasn't the first time this had happened with Jerry, and you're right. They'd get him to the hospital, and, you know, after some medical attention and whatever they did, Terry would kick out of it. And uh, right. Terry was, was good about that. I I can't tell you how many times we've been in the building, and, and me and Jackie Fulton, my tag team partner, have got a work doc in Terry. And Terry would literally sleep. We always got to the building at 6 o'clock in Japan. I mean, at 4 o'clock for 6 o'clock shows, 3.30 or 4, and we had 6 o'clock bell time. And there have been a, a, numerous times that you wouldn't think Terry was going to wake up to be able to go over this thing and to be able to put a finish together. But somehow he would always wake up and get a couple of Percocets down his throat, which would sort of revive him, get a couple of coffees in him. And, uh, and, and then by the time, you know, you need to go out and do what you got to do, he was okay. And you've been able to put a match together or finish together, and you can go out and work with them and work well with them. So I think everybody had seen that happen so many times that they thought Terry was going to kick out of this, but this one was different, and he couldn't. Yeah. You say Connie said he had been on a weak bender. It sounds like if he was on the Xanax and Soma, and you, you mentioned another pill, when he got to the airport, it sounds like he was doing some pretty hardcore stuff during the week and just trying to trying to come off of that and or come down maybe off of that for the flight or I I'm just I'm just guessing but um well, was he known well, but, was he known go ahead no go ahead was he known to to do I what? was going to ask if, if he was not was he really known to just week long bend like that you know on his off time was he just was that was that known, or whenever she told y'all that, y'all were like, "Oh my God!" No, I mean he had done it before, and 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 I'm not talking about like hard street drugs. Terry, like most of the guys, had a problem with prescription medication: Somas, right. Xanax, Halcyons, uh, Valium, pain pills. Now, pain pills aren't going to put you in that kind of comatose state. That comes with the Somas, the muscle relaxers, the Xanax the sleeping pills, and he had combined all those, and he had been doing that for about a week to 10 days prior to us leaving to go to Japan for that tour. So that was what put him in the condition he was in, was that deadly combination of Xanax and Somas and Valiums and Halcyons. Yeah, wow. I don't even know what some of those are, but that's a lot of medication. Um, it is. The, yeah, um, tell me a little bit about the mood on the flight once y'all, once right into the flight, he kind of goes into a coma. Was everybody dead silent? Was a, a kind of a chilling situation? Or did y'all, did y'all at any point think he was going to die? Like, were you constantly checking his pulse? Or what was that like? No, I mean, on the guys, flight. You, Go ahead. I was going to say, because you guys are over uh, a huge body of water. You have no options. You know, no, you, you, you got to ride don't. it out. So, uh, no, that's on, on, on the flight, we all had the mindset of, hey, that's just Terry. And, uh, yeah. and listen, it, I guess you had to be there to truly understand it, but that was a big deal. That went on with so many of the boys back in that time. 
uh, prescription pain medication. And listen, it caused major problems in my life later down the road. So you you really you thought, okay, Terry's done it again. But by the time we get to Tokyo and, you know, we'll be able to – he'll sleep it off on this 12-hour flight. And we'll get to Tokyo, and he'll be okay, and everything will be fine. And come tomorrow when we got to work our first show here, yeah, everything will be okay. And that was the, the mindset we all had. But once we saw them taking him off the plane on a stretcher and putting him in an ambulance, then it became a little more sobering, and you're thinking, wow, something's not right here. And this isn't the normal – the normal way things are done. He usually pops out of this, or any of us that go that far would pop out of it, but but this was different. This was a different one. Yeah. Yeah. Was that was that the most uh was that the most drastic or, or close to tragic event that you witnessed? Was there anything maybe backstage at a show or event or anything that happened even close to that? Well I had seen some other guys. I mean, I, I was on a flight where we had to make an emergency landing for Hawk. He was in the same kind of condition. Um, he kicked out. And I was in WCW with Pillman and WWF with Pillman when he died. And uh, I saw some scary things with Pillman. We all did. And uh, right. I mean, some scary things. And, and And other guys as well. So we had seen a lot of circumstances and a lot of situations where guys had gone too far and had to have medical attention right away or be taken to a hospital uh, or have to have a doctor look at them. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, Kerry's was probably the worst case example, but I'll tell you just that being a part of the Pillman, the Pillman deal, it, that was bad because again, this, this was a guy that was clearly in deep, deep trouble with this medication and we all knew that this wasn't going to end good and it didn't yeah was Pillman actually a football guy or was that a work no listen and and again there's another one I, I left off Brian Pillman was a heck of a football player as a matter of fact I played against Brian in college he played at Miami of Ohio and in 1983 they came to Columbia and played played us at williams Bryce Stadium, and he was a nose guard. Well, I'm an offensive guard. So we actually played head up on each other uh, several times that night, and that was the first time I'd met Brian, and we actually formed a relationship out of that long before we got to wrestling. And uh, Brian was a heck of a football player. He played a couple of years with the Cincinnati Bengals. He was a very good special teams player. But Brian was a tremendous football player. And what was – more impressive about Brian as a football player is he was undersized. Uh, when I played against him that night, Brian weighed about 240 as a nose guard, and I'm a 280-pound offensive guard. And basically every matchup he went into, he was undersized, but he was extremely quick, extremely quick, and a tough, hard-nosed player. Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually never knew if that was a work or he just wore the bingo-looking tights to – to tie in or not, I had no idea. Never checked in. No, that's that's a shoot. That's a real deal. Gotcha. Yeah, shame about him passing as well. Um, whenever uh, the the Japan stuff come around, when you guys went over there, how bad was the travel compared to here? Uh, when you travel here in America um, for AWA and, and WWE and stuff like that, it was 
it was a world of different. It was just totally different. Uh, we used every form of trans- transportation possible when I was in Japan. Of course, we would fly over, uh, but we would we had a big, nice, luxury coach bus that they had the Americans, and the Japanese had two of them since there were more Japanese guys than there were gaijins or American guys. Uh, but we also we would fly uh, in Japan from town to town sometimes. We took the bullet train uh, on a number of occasions, uh, and then we've even taken ferries. We would go once a year way up north to Sapporo and, uh, Sapporo and Hokkaido, way up north getting near Russia. And uh, we've, I've been on a ferry ride for, for 10 hours on numerous occasions. And uh, so it was a much harder schedule uh, traveling there than it was here. And it was also just tougher all the way around. It was uh, especially working for Baba like I did. It was just a much more physical style of wrestling. Our TV show was an hour every Sunday. There was not one interview. There was not one promo. Every match had a clean finish. There were no valets. There were no managers. There were no run-ins. There were no double DQs. There were no count-outs. Nothing like that. Every match had a clean one, two, three finish. And we didn't draw fans in based on promos. We didn't do them. Any other hype, we sold tickets and put butts in seats based on the quality of match that we presented every night. And it's still the highlight of my career. Even more than WWF, WCW is Japan. That was the best part of my career was working in Japan. I was going to ask you that at the end, so that's good. But, no, they do over there. That's something me, Sony, and Will have discussed on the show is they just appreciate good in-ring ability. They they appreciate a good match. They don't care about any of the – the drama and soap opera stuff. No, they do not. And uh, let me tell you, I I was fortunate to work with great Americans over there. But in my opinion, if you've got a top five list of the greatest workers that have ever lived, if that top five does not include Kabashi and Masawa, then it ain't a top five. Those were two of the greatest <laughs> in the ring workers that have ever put on a pair of boots. Gotcha. Well, I'm gonna let Sony and Will ask a few more questions. But if you had to, uh, if you had to pick some wrestlers today that impress you, I don't know if you even watch the watch the product now. Um, but anybody out there doing their thing today that kind of you like, or you like the way they go about their business, or you like their career, respect them. Anybody out there you want to brag on? Well, I don't watch a lot of the product. I don't care if it's uh, Ring of Honor or New Japan or. Who it, it just it's just hard to watch and it's hard to follow WWE. But I have always, always, and I realize that he's had to work on personality. But I've been a Roman Reigns fan from day one. Just the physical appearance, physical ability, the way he moves in a ring, the way he looks, his athleticism, and I hear all the criticism that he gets that he has no personality. But I think that's starting to develop. But I've I've always uh, been a fan uh, of his stuff in the ring and just his look. Yeah, I would agree with that. I I, I think Roman's a pretty solid guy, and AJ Styles. I think they're pretty two solid guys in in wrestling right now. But AJ, of course, has been to Japan and wrestled for uh, forever. But before I have and I like, I, I, go, go ahead. 
and I like AJ as well. Go ahead. Uh, before I hog it up, I'm going to let Sony and Will get back in here. But I did want to mention that you are going to be in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana on November 11th for the Heroes and Legends 9. That's correct? That is correct, yes. Okay. And uh, then me and Sony may see you, um, more than likely will see you, uh, November 25th um, at WrestleCade up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And, and hopefully um, – our buddy Rick Flair will be well enough to be there, and uh, you'll get to see him too. I hope so. Um, I saw Rick at last year's WrestleCade. I think this will be probably the fifth WrestleCade that I've done. Uh, I always enjoy WrestleCade. It's a great event. Uh, Tracy Myers does a phenomenal job with this, and George South helps him a lot, so it's always good to work with those two guys and then see the other guys as well that we see there every year and I'm like you. I hope Rick's there. I really do. Yeah, I really do, too. Well, Stoney, I'm going to kick it to you and, and then let you kick it to Will and, and stop hogging up the stuff. But, Dell, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll hit you right before we end it. But uh, I, I'm a huge fan, as you can tell, Dell, and know a lot about you and have learned a lot more talking to you. And hope everything's good. Uh, we both live pretty close together, so I'm glad this storm kind of made a westward turn away from us. Um, yep. Poor Ron Fuller, Will Wheeler's uh, hero. Uh, poor Ron Fuller kind of left Florida for the for the uh, storm and ended up in Alabama, and now it seems to be following him to Alabama. So um, wherever he's at, he always listens to the podcast. Ron, I hope you're safe. Uh, I'm sure Will does as well. And uh, Tony, yeah. take it away, buddy. <laughs> All right. Well, we were just talking about Fan Fest, and and uh, what we're going to do is we are going to uh, to talk about something. Um, if you want to know more about Dell, something really, really cool that he's been really, uh, uh, that fans have been able to really get into uh, the last year or so. And, and I'm sure if you go see him at FanFest, these will be available as well on his website. And check this out. I am going to shoot a little bit of clip right here. It's the audio for the promo video. And you can check the, the promo video um, on the Dell Wilkes site. It's uh, DellThePatriotWilkes.com. But uh, we're gonna. I'm gonna blast a. Uh, we usually do a commercial break halfway through the show. But what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna blast this instead, um, because if you're listening, you know already how to get to the GWH website. And then afterwards, we are going to talk to Dell about this particular piece that I'm going to play for you, and we are going to shoot a number for anybody that wants to call in to talk to Dell. So check this out. We will be back right in a second. I never dreamed I would live such an amazing life. Coming from a small town in South Carolina, playing four years at the University of South Carolina was the thrill of my life. A Cinderella College football team of 1984, they've won eight straight. Coming from behind with a 25 fourth quarter outburst last week. Being a Gamecock and becoming an All-American is something that I take great pride in. Who knew when football ended that my journey would continue when I put on a mask? Wrestling became my life as I traveled the globe, representing the red, white, and blue. But along my path, things got out of control, and my life was on the wrong path. This is the story of me, Dell Wilkes, my dreams, my success, my failures, and my redemption. This is my life behind the mask. 
right. And for those of you ups up, up there, I never drink. For those of you, for those of you unfamiliar, that is the audio from the promo promo video for the DVD Del Wilkes Behind the Mask. And uh, we want to, uh, we're going to kind of like to talk about that. And Del, first off, I want to ask, did you did did you ever imagine? Uh, Back even maybe seventy eight seventy nine maybe before uh uh you became a game game cop, did you ever imagine that one day that uh, you would have a a story a dVD and and all of this you know anybody can make a, a story of their life, but a few people can have interesting stories of their life, and you've been through every up down low and in between there's did you ever imagine that that one day you would be like the focal point of, of a story like this. That would be three DVDs. Yeah, that would, that would be seven hours between those three DVDs. And I didn't, um, you know, it's, it's funny. You get into things because you love them. I got into football because I genuinely loved football and was passionate about it. I didn't do it for any notoriety or recognition. Same thing with wrestling. I got into it because I loved pro wrestling and I wanted to be one of those guys I'd watched on TV. I didn't get into it thinking one day that I'd have a DVD out, a documentary. No, not at all. But I'm very thankful and very fortunate that Michael Elliott, the guy that produced this, approached me a few years back at WrestleCade, of all places, uh, about doing this. He had done some previous documentaries on uh, Crockett Promotions, Ivan Koloff, Jimmy Valiant, um, other guys, and uh, he came to me and he just literally said, he said, look, man, uh, my wife can vouch for this. I've told him the story. You were my favorite wrestler when I was growing up. And he said, I think you got an interesting story that needs to be told, and I would love to tell it. And I'm very appreciative to Michael for extending that opportunity to me and, to me and for a wonderful job that he did. Uh, you know, you... Uh... Uh, in the promo video, you can hear um, a lot of uh, about the ups, but you can hear a lot of, of the downs and, and people that have, have kind of lived like pretty level lives and maybe not have experienced as crazy highs as lows. Um, you said uh, you had said that that you got into football because it's something that that you enjoyed, made you happy. You got into wrestling for the same reason, and, and maybe people don't understand because some of the lows were pretty low. Um, if you were that happy, and and this is just so people can understand, sometimes sometimes happiness and success can can be a little weird. Um, what what takes a happy and turns it around to 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 take you places that that you you never expected to go in the first place at the, after that? Well, for other guys, I can't speak. I don't know, but for me, I can tell you exactly what caused it. And what brought it about? Um, I was extremely happy with my career and the way things were going. But I started having injury issues. And not just twisting an ankle, but ripping a tendon off your bone, blowing a knee out, um, you know, shoulder problems, knee problems, elbow problems. And when you're in a business that's as physical as pro wrestling, uh, you've got to keep going, and you do have injuries. I realize it's entertainment, but it's a very physical form of entertainment. And I was I was in a car with Kurt Henning and John Nord, 
and I'm riding down the interstate, and Nord's driving, Henning's in the passenger seat, I'm in the back seat. And I have an elbow that looks like it's got a grapefruit under my skin. It's that big. I was taking, the doctor had given me a bunch of needles and syringes and said, look, you're just going to have to take the fluid off yourself. So every two days I was taking 30 cc's of fluid off this elbow. And it's giving me tremendous problems, great pain, but I've got to keep doing what I'm paid a lot of money to do and what I dreamed of doing. And I was just complaining out loud to Kurt Nord about the problem I'm having with my elbow. And uh, Henning said, what do you take for it? Well, I'm an old country boy. A goodie powder will take care of everything. And I said, Kurt, I'm taking goodie powders. And he laughed at me. He said, a goodie powder? He said, are you kidding me? He said, you don't have a doctor that will prescribe you Percocet or Percodan or Vicodin? And I really didn't know what those things were. I'd had some previous surgeries but and had been prescribed pain medication, but I didn't know what it was. I took it based on doctor's orders. I said, no, I don't. And, and I thought pain medication would make you so goofy you couldn't work on it. The next thing I asked him was, was, how do you work on it? He said, how do you not work on it? And he reached into his bag, and he took out six Percocet. He said, here, hold on to these. Take two tonight before you match, two the next night, and just tell me what you think. Well, I did, and the injury didn't go away, but the pain went away. And I could go out and work better than I'd been able to work dealing with this elbow problem. He said, when you get home, you need to go see a doctor and get him to write you a prescription. And I did. So it started out innocently enough, taking a couple of pain pills before match, just what I could do, what I love doing and what I was paid to do. And it took a while, but those two that night eventually ended up becoming 120 a day. And that was just the pain pills. It didn't count all the other pills I was taking. But I had 120 Percocet a day habit by the time my career ended and into retirement. And it didn't start out to get that far. It didn't start out to catch a buzz. It started out to be able to deal with an injury. But it grew into something just completely overwhelmed me and almost cost me my life. Now, for those not familiar, uh, was there was there any particular uh, moment or instance that that made you stop and say, "Hey, you know, this this is out of control. This is something I need to I I need to take care of this. I need to figure something out. I, I need to I need to stop doing this or or find another way to to deal with this pain." No, and you think it would, but it didn't. Brian Pillman dying didn't it, it didn't stop it. Uh, numerous guys dying on the road. It didn't stop it. Um, the doctor that had operated on me at the time, he was my orthopedic. He told me, he said, you have got a bad problem with these pain pills. And I had just signed my three-year deal with the WWF. And there was a lot of money in that three-year deal. And I'm six months into it or three or four months into it. And, and I knew before I got there, my body was a wreck. And I didn't even know if I could make the three-year deal, if I could get through it. So he had, I went to him one day for a refill of my prescription. And he said, I can't write you any more pills, Dale. He said, you have got a serious problem. And I said, Doc, I said, let me explain something to you. I said, I'm 
just a few months into a three-year deal that's going to pay me a lot of money, an awful lot of money. And I said, I can't walk away from it. I said, I've got to continue to do what I do. And I can't stop to have another surgery. I've already tried that. I said, I'll make a deal with you. I said, if you'll continue to write me prescriptions and let me get through this three years, I'll retire at the end of it. I'll go to rehab, and I'll let you, you know, handle all that. I give you my word. Okay. So he continued to write them. And uh, he eventually cut me off after I retired, but I still had several surgeries to go through. And I had a doctor that uh, was a doctor to the wrestlers that would write you anything, anytime you wanted. He lived in another state, but you could call him and say, hey, bud, I need 150 Vicodins. Well, what's the pharmacy number? And he'd call him in. Well, he got busted and lost his practice or his license to practice. So I was in a mess. I was hooked. I still had major pain issues, but I was an addict. And I had to find a way to keep getting these pills. So I went to a different doctor one day, and he wrote me a prescription. And I got home, and I started looking at that prescription. And I said, you know what? I am going to be the doctor. I'm going to call a pharmacy and use this doctor's name, this doctor's DEA number. I'm going to create a fictitious patient, certainly not going to use my name. And I had been around this doctor I told you about that was a doctor to the wrestlers. I'd heard him call prescriptions in countless times. I said, I think I can do this. I know what to say, how to say it. And so I called the pharmacist that day, and it worked. I went and picked the prescription up, and it worked the next time and the next time and the next time. So that became my main source of getting medicines was me forging prescriptions. That's a felony. Well, along the way, I was arrested 25 times for forging prescriptions. And if it weren't for the name recognition I had here in Columbia, South Carolina, I'd have probably gone to prison a lot sooner. But every judge, every prosecutor, every solicitor felt a little sympathy for me. The guy's not out on the street selling drugs. He's got legitimate issues, injuries he's trying to deal with. He's got hooked on them, and let's try to help this guy. And they tried probation, fines, intensified probation, but I kept doing it, kept doing it, kept getting arrested. Make a long story short, finally one day, the system got tired of me, and I went before a judge that had put me on probation two times before. I'd already been before this judge. And he said, Mr. Wilkes, I'm looking at your rap sheet. He said, it's six pages long. He said, I've tried sending you to rehab. I've tried putting you on probation. I went to four rehabs, four order rehabs. And he said, nothing has worked so far, sir. He said, you spit in my face and in the face of the legal system here in South Carolina. He said, so you leave me no other option to do the last thing I wanted to do. He said, I'm going to sentence you to five years in the South Carolina Department of Corrections. I'll suspend it to 18 months. You'll do 50% of that. And uh, so I walked out of a courtroom that day with shackles around my ankles and around my wrist. And I didn't go to a detention center to spend the night. I went to a prison to spend an, ex- an extended length of time. So that's where it ended up. Mm-hmm. So, watching so prison jail kind of kind of changed that habit for you, and you had to stop your habit when you went to jail, right? Yeah, you couldn't you couldn't get them there. Had no other and, and, and anybody that knows anything about 
prescription pain medication, it, it's an opiate. It, it, it's, it comes from the same plant, and it's got the same stuff in it that's heroin, just in a different form. It is the most physically addictive drug that there is. And when you try to cold turkey after you've had a heroin or pain pill addiction, that withdrawal can kill you. It, it, it is the worst, worst withdrawal you can go through. Vomiting, throwing up, uh, horrible muscle cramps, horrible headaches. I mean, sleepless night. It, it, it's just, I've never had anything in my life intimidate me except that. Trying to get off that pain pills and trying to do it cold turkey. It was so bad that I just said, I can't do it. I, I'll just go back to using. But when you get sent to prison and you can no longer force prescriptions and go to a pharmacy and pick them up, then you got to deal with it. Mm-mm. So you, wow. on top of, on top of having to, to go to prison, you pretty much have forced, rehab on top of it all while you're in prison. I mean, you have two things that are difficult enough on their own, but then they're teamed up together. That, wow, that must have been pretty, pretty, pretty. I can imagine that you didn't really have anything as tough as that before and possibly since. No, now, the one thing I, I did have enough foresight about me to realize that, that uh, my court date when I was going back before that same judge that sentenced me to prison that day, I had a couple of months from the time they gave me that date until, you know, it was about two months out. And uh, so I had time to sort of start weaning myself down so that when I got to prison, I wouldn't go through that horrible dope sickness and those horrible withdrawals. And uh, so I had an opportunity to do that, but, I was out of control in every capacity. I was spending stupid money on cocaine, um, drinking heavily. My life had just spiraled completely out of control. I mean, and when you're doing things like that, your family doesn't stay intact. Your wife can't continue to live under circumstances like that. Uh, so it, it affects everything. You know, I lost my family and and freedom, and, and so it affects everything. It, it's got a big ripple effect. Are you still uh, in, in touch with your ex-wife, uh, Dale, that went through that with you? Are you all still on speaking terms? I know you think you have kids together, right? We do. The three kids are – now, I'm, I've since remarried. I've got a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful wife, uh, Kathy. But yeah, Kathy, yeah. It, it took it took a long time for that bitter ex-wife to get over that, and uh, a long time. But yeah, we we are on decent, good terms actually. That, that you said she's the mother of my three children, and and uh, but uh, but I'm fortunate that uh, I've, I've got Kathy in my life, a good good woman. Right. Well, as bad as it was, and Sony said, you know, the lows are real low. I don't even think Sony knew that they got that low. But um, it's good that you kicked out. Um, that was a that I would say that was a two and and nine tenth count right there. But you you managed to kick out. And what's better is you you tell your story and 
I know you know right now is the worst opioid epidemic America's ever seen, ever, yeah. in the history yeah, of the is. country. Um, anytime you know anybody can hear a story like that, it, it has to be able to help. Um, but when when you say uh, you were taking 120 Percocet a day or Vicodin or whatever it was, um, gosh, how much money was that that you were just blowing through, if you don't mind me asking? Well, now this was, I guess I got out of prison in 03. So this was the late 90s and early 2000s. And a, a prescription of 100, 120 Percocets back then was probably about a hundred bucks, uh, but it, it, this doctor I was telling you about, um, he and a lot of the guys have used him, and uh, a lot of the guys, and a lot of guys that are no longer with us used him. Um, I had a deal with him. He he was like my mortgage payment uh, every month. I paid him X amount of dollars, as did a lot of the boys. He was making so much money off the boys that his practice that he had in the city that he lived in, it was only open two days a week just before he could see some patients. I flew him and his family to Vegas and put them up. I flew him him and his family to San Francisco. Uh, But he was part of my budget monthly. And what he would do is at the beginning of every week, he would mail out seven written prescriptions for a 100 or either 120 um, um, Percocets or Vicodin. So he knew what I was doing, but as long as he was getting paid, he didn't care. So he would FedEx it to me every Monday. I would get it Tuesday. So every Tuesday I would open up this FedEx package, and there would be seven different written prescriptions of 100 to 120 pain pills on each prescription. And, um, I mean, that's 800 pills a week, man. Any doctor would yeah, do that. And that didn't count the sleeping pills, the muscle relaxers, the halcyons, uh, the Valiums, uh, Xanax. Uh, when you combine all that together, I was taking over 200 pills a day. Wow. You must have a Patriot's liver. It's It's got to be like a camel or an ox. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. And, and I don't want to. I don't think the average human has the capacity to, to ingest all that stuff, man. You're pretty lucky. Very. I'll tell you this. I don't want to use up all the time you guys have, but I do want to tell you another part of this. Uh, maybe three years ago, it was a Sunday afternoon after church, and we're sitting at the house. And I went to Kathy, and I handed her a yellow legal pad, and I handed her a pen. I said, I want you to write down every name I give you. She said, well, what are we doing? I said, I'm going to give you the name of every guy, woman that I wrestled with. Maybe we didn't wrestle for the same company, but we wrestled at the same time. Maybe they were at the end of their career, and I was at the beginning, but our careers crossed paths and lapsed each other, and they're no longer with us. They've died. And I had 85 names that day, and I bet you there weren't half a dozen of them that died from natural causes like a heart attack, or cancer, there was one or two that died from a car wreck. Over 80 of them, or probably around 80 of them, had died as a result of prescription medication. And most of them died on the road in a hotel room somewhere or at their home, you know, when they had got off the road. But 
95% of them were linked to some drug abuse. So I am very fortunate that I'm not one of those 85. Yeah, very, very, very. Thank the good Lord you're not. Amen to that. All right, guys. We are now down below the 25-minute mark. Um, And what we're going to do, I think – um, we've gotten to some deep discussion. People can find out more about that by getting that DVD at Dell's website. So I think what uh, what we're probably going to do is I'm going to throw out the number real quick. So anybody listening, if we have listeners, um, a lot of times a lot of our listens are, are on demand. But I'm going to throw it out just in case if anybody wants to call in and has anything to ask Dell. It's 347-324-5735. And um, I think um, I think it's now it's a good time. We will take the last 20 or so minutes, maybe lighten up the mood, have a little bit of fun, um, or maybe for the next 15. And then that way, if at the end, if there's anything that Del really, really, really wants to 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 include, we can make sure. But um, I think let's toss out some things that maybe people might not know and. Uh, I am going to let Will ask Dell the first question. What we're going to do is we're going to go Will, Mike, Stoney, Will, Mike, Stoney. And we are just going to barrage you with quick questions, and you tell us, you reply. So, Will, you got an interesting, maybe not even wrestling, whatever, question for Dell. All right. Um, when you played high school football, who was the – it was probably the top teams in South in high, South Carolina high school football when you played. Oh uh, well, we were Irmo. As a matter of fact, my junior and senior year, Irmo and Somerville played for the state championship, uh, and they those two schools even played for the state championship the year after I got out. So there was a three year stretch there, and we were four A at the time. That was the biggest level of football in South Carolina. Irmo and Somerville played for the state championship three years in a row. Now, Greenwood was also good. Uh, OW uh, had a good team. Uh, I'm not as familiar with the teams in the lower state uh, as I was the teams in the up Greenwood and Somerville along with Irma. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. All right, Mike. Um, if you if you had to say you've wrestled a lot of people in the ring, uh, you've probably been on the road and wrestled the same person many 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 times in different cities. Um, if you had to name one, or, or maybe you can't name just one, maybe a couple. Um, who would be your favorite opponent where you didn't have to speed up your wrestling or, or slow down, or you didn't have to change up too much? You just went into the wrestling ring with with this one opponent and. And you never had to worry. Is, is there any names you can throw out? Yeah, I can. And, and the top name would be Kabashi, Kenta Kabashi, uh, in all Japan. The toughest guy, the best worker I've ever been in the ring with. And I've been in the ring with everybody. Uh, Mazawa uh, would be another one. Uh, Bret Hart would be one from a single standpoint. Now, I was also involved with some tag teams. So from a tag team standpoint, uh, my partner in Japan, Jackie Fulton, he and I wrestled hundreds of matches with the Cannon Express, uh, Phil LaFon and Doug Furness. And then Marcus and I had programs with the Harlem Heat and pretty wonderful. So in tag teams, it would be those guys. Gotcha. 
All right, nice, nice. All right, so those are some that you enjoyed wrestled. What about during your time period, maybe somebody that, looking back, that you would have liked to wrestle that you actually didn't get to wrestle? Well, I would have wanted to to, to, to work with Austin in the singles. Uh, when I was in WCW, Marcus and I worked with him and Regal, Steve Regal, in several tag matches. Uh, but I've, I would have liked to have had the opportunity to work with Steve in some single matches. I never had a chance to work with uh, with Mark, the Undertaker. Now, we worked the same company the begin, beginning of our career. We worked at Mid-South for Lawler and Jarrett, but we were both just getting started. But I would have liked the chance to have worked with him as well. All right. Well, all right, um, another this is a, another football question. Um, you played on right guard. Who was probably one of the toughest uh, D linemen or and or linebackers you ever had to play against, college or pro? Well, William Perry. Uh, I played against William. We were in the same region in high school, so I played against William two years in high school, four years in college, and William was a tough guy to play against. He was big, strong, and quick. Um, I also played against uh, Chris Dolman uh, that played the University of Pittsburgh, played for the Vikings in the NFL, uh, Hall of Famer, uh, played against Hugh Green, played against Ricky Jackson. Uh, those guys were probably the elite uh, and some of the better guys that I played against uh, in my career. That's awesome. Wow. All right. Mikey. Dale, Dale, um, and when people are on the road, they usually save money by by teaming up at least two people, sometimes more, to to a hotel room and a car from town to town. Um, and your uh, and your time here wrestling, uh, who did you mainly roll with whenever it came to travel, or, or did you was you a loner? Well, when I was in WCW, uh, Bagwell and I were together all the time, and we. We we spent a lot of time, me, him, and Sting traveling together. And then for a, a couple of months, it was me, Sting, Bagwell, and Savage traveling together. Um, so Bagwell and Sting, I spent a lot of time with on the road. Now, when I was in the WWF there uh, at the end, uh, the first several months I was there, it was me and the Road Warriors. Uh, then me and Vader traveled together a lot. But the last several months I was in the WWF, it was me, D'Lo Brown uh, and uh, The Rock. We uh, we spent months together on the road. Uh, Rock was really just in the infancy of his career. Uh, I was a more established star at that time. We know that drastically changed. But uh, I'll tell you an interesting story about it real quick. He grew up in a wrestling family. Rock did. He had tremendous respect for his elders in the wrestling business and people that had more tenure, more time than he did. Me, him, and D'Lo were in town one day. I don't know where we were at, Rock's driving. They wouldn't even let me drive. They wouldn't allow me to drive because I was a veteran and, and had more time than they did. We hit a curb, had a flat tire. And we're on our way to the building. So we unload all our luggage out of the trunk so we can get to the spare tire. They would not even – Rock told me, he said, don't touch anything. He said, Dale, you've spent way more time on the road than we have. He said, sit down on the curb. Me and D'Lo will change this tire. We'll unpack all the luggage. We'll put it back. So that's the kind of guy he is, the kind of respect he had for others. And uh, that's the way they treated me when I traveled with them. I definitely did not know much of that. That was some very good insight. Stoney? 
All right. Um, we, we had talked about um, uh, South Carolina, growing up South Carolina, football, tradition of football in the South, and, 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 and being courted by, by all these different football programs. Well, in, in late 70s, early 80s, surely, uh, surely uh, if I can remember back, um, he had a choice between uh, Clemson and the Gamecocks. Surely Clemson was a little bit more of a powerhouse back in that time. What was it that made you decide to go to the Gamecocks over Clemson? Well, number one, I didn't grow up a Clemson fan. I grew up a Gamecock fan. But they had started recruiting me so early that that meant a lot to me. But the thing that that, that, that threw it towards them was the head coach at South Carolina at the time, Jim Carlin. And I, I told you, I, I still am friends with Coach Ford, but there was something about Coach Carlin that was different than any other coach that recruited me, his brutal honesty and just the way he handled players and the way he approached the recruiting side of it. Uh, Jim Carlin was the reason I came to South Carolina. Nice. All right, Will. All right. Um, another football-related question. Um, when you played at Irmo, did y'all ever play any out-of-state teams and um, – if you had a dream high school opponent, you would have played. Um, and I'm going to put this as a choice. Would you have rather played Valdosta or Warner Robins in the 70s? Well, we never did play out of state back then. Uh, but both of those Georgia schools had a tremendous reputation. But I think I'd have probably rather played Warner Robins just based on the reputation they had and some of the names that came out of there. Uh, I think I would have chosen Warner Robins. That is true. And the fact of the matter is um, – I know personally I was on the receiving end of a Valdosta beatdown this past year in the state playoffs who Valdosta ended up winning the Georgia 6A championship. So, and I played against, <laughs> coached against Warner Robins a few times. They're nasty. Yeah. Yeah, tremendous programs. All right, Mikey. Hey, uh, Dale, being yeah. uh, me from middle Georgia and, and keeping with the Warner Robins theme, uh, Ron Simmons, who we mentioned earlier, he was very huge where I'm from. Um, my sisters, I had two stepsisters. I went to West Lawrence, but they went to Dublin High. And if you ever went to a Dublin High School game, you could go to the visitor side and you would see Ron Simmons and his wife watching his uh, son play. Um, is there any stories that you have with Ron? We all ever close. I know that your careers are pretty identical somewhat, but um, did you and Ron ever, ever have camaraderie buddy up? Were, were you all ever tight? No, uh, I mean, obviously we were friends, and, and, and uh, I still see Ron a lot at these uh, fan fest things that we do. But I think we only traveled together a couple of times. Uh, and it was, I remember specifically two different times that we rode together. It was me, him, and, and Foley in a car together. But those were the only two times that we ever spent, you know, that kind of time together on the road. We, we were friends and got along, but no, we, we didn't run in the same circles. Gotcha. All right. Um, we were talking about all these different sports, Dell. Okay, we know football, we know wrestling. Any other sports, maybe high school, college, pre-wrestling, even possible, you know, amateur wrestling? No, I played one year. Of Little League Baseball, the fifth or sixth grade, uh, I, I just was a football guy. 
Uh, I loved all sports, and, you know, and played backyard basketball or go down to the rec and play basketball and baseball, softball, softball the same way. But from an organized uh, point of view, no, it was just strictly football for me. All right. Well, I think Will would love that. All right, Will. All right, that's awesome. Um, one thing I'd love to uh, know, and it's just uh, – and. Me being a coach at Lakeside High School, we have a natural rivalry with Evans High because my high school, Lakeside, broke off from Evans almost 30 years ago. Um, who was y'all's main rival when you were at Irmo? Well, it was teams that that was in our region. Uh, Aiken High School was one of them, and that's where William played, William Perry, and his brother Michael Dean Perry. Uh, that was a big rivalry for us. Uh, also, uh, Greenwood High School, was a big rivalry from us. for us. We we played them two years in a row for a chance to go to the state championship game. And both of those games went into overtime. One went into double overtime. Uh, so that was a big rivalry from us in the standpoint that it was for those two years it came down to us beating them or them beating us to get in the state championship game. Now, we also had a big rivalry with Columbia High School as well, and that was just a proximity thing. They they weren't that good. We we split their head open every year, but because we were so close to each other, uh, there was always our school getting vandalized a week before the game, uh, or the sidewalks getting spray painted. And of course, we'd go do the same thing to their school. But from a competitive standpoint, it wasn't a rivalry. It's just because we were so close together. Awesome, awesome. Uh, we have to, I'm used to high school rivalries, and that from what you have said. I can definitely attest to that and the fact that um, I did coach against the current Greenwood head coach, uh, Dan Pippen. Oh, okay. A lot of good players come out of Greenwood, uh-huh. man. All right, Mikey. Hey, we've mentioned uh, Marcus uh, Bagwell a couple times. Um, you mentioned how close you were with him. He actually was here uh, August 12th, I think, uh, doing an indie show for Viral Pro Wrestling. Um, so he's still doing that. I was wondering your take on his after wrestling endeavor as a male escort. <laughs> Man, let me tell you something about Marcus. He he is. I mean, we're still very close. We we talk regularly. As a matter of fact, we talked uh, last week uh, a couple of days in a row. And uh, Marcus has done some of those things like that. Uh, he's. Uh, <laughs> As a matter of fact, he told me about what he was getting ready to do with Showtime. And Marcus's mom is named Judy, and his wife is named Judy. And uh, he told me, he said, man, Judy has got this great idea, he said, about me going on Showtime and, and doing this show that's based around Gigolo. And I said, let me ask you a question. I said, is that Judy mom or Judy wife? And he said it was Judy wife. And uh, but Marcus, Marcus is that kind of guy. Marcus is, uh, uh, if he can do something and make money at it, Marcus is going to give it a shot. It's, you know, I, I don't think it was the job or the job title or the job description that appealed to Marcus. It was the potential income that appealed to Marcus. And uh, I, uh, I truly, I do. I love the guy. He's he's a great friend of mine, and uh, we stay in close contact. And uh, but well, nothing Marcus I, does surprises me. I've seen his website. I'm going to tell you, it is some good side money. He 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 is not a cheap escort. 
Well, he he makes good money. He uh, <laughs> he told me what he he just now this was just wrestling money. I'm not going to tell you what he made, but uh, a couple of weeks ago he said I had a week that just everything fell together from his independent wrestling and selling his gimmicks and stuff like that, and he had a phenomenal week. So uh, he's still out there, man. I, I give him credit. Uh, I have I have a completely different point of view. When my career was over and I couldn't continue to get in the ring. I, I, I was done, but he's still out there working these indie shows and, and working his website. And I don't know if he's still doing the escort service or not. We haven't talked about it. I don't know that the show's still running, but uh, Marcus is a hustler. He is hard worker and a hustler. Yeah. Yeah. He is. And he's a fellow Georgia boy. So we try not to rag on him. Right, I'm going to tell you another thing that, that bothers me about Marcus and it's Marcus should have had a 10-year run in the WWE. It makes no sense to me why Marcus never had an opportunity in the WWE or a short opportunity. Marcus is a great talent in the ring. He's a hard worker. He's entertaining. He's he's dependable. He's loyal. And Marcus should have had a great 10- to 12-year run in the WWF or WWE, but he didn't get it. I would agree with that, and uh, I remember the one match they let him have on TV, and then Stone Cold threw him out the building, and you never saw him again. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. I, I don't know if Vince just wanted to bury the old WCW guys or or what, but yeah, I would agree. Yeah. All right, guys, we are getting down to the tail end, close to the five minute mark, so we got to make sure that we we nail down some particulars. So, um, so Dell, um, any upcoming events that you want to throw out there uh, to the fans or whatever that you got coming up? So we want to make sure that they know where you're going to be coming up, so they can make sure they can get out there and they can meet you and see and support you. Well, the two that you mentioned are the two biggest ones that uh, over the course of the next, you know, between now and November, I'm going to be doing, which is the. Heroes and Legends, I think it's November the 11th in Fort Wayne. Uh, I'll be there. Vader will be there. Jack Swagger will be there, along with other people. Um, and then, you know, you can go to their website and check that out or go to their link and check that out. And then WrestleCade a couple of weeks after that. Uh, I'll be in Winston-Salem on November the 25th, a Saturday. And um, I, get a lot, I get a lot of opportunities to do these things. I'm very selective about the ones I do. Um, I could do a lot more of them, but uh, it's just I'm, I'm content. I'm in a good place, and I really try to be selective and picky about, you know, when I do what I do. But those are the next All right. two that are coming up. All right. And, of course, you can keep track of all the stuff at www.dellthepatriotwilks.com. And um, I got a chance to look over site, some really, really cool stuff, um, uh, some cool merchandise that you can get on there. So make sure you go on there and, 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 and show your love, support. And there's even one that says, Contact Dell the Patriot Wilkes. And as we can attest, if you hit up Dell, he'll hit you up. He'll hit you back. Adele is, is, is very much in touch with his fans. Um, is there anything that you would like to say uh, as we wind down? We're down uh, below four, just close to the four-minute mark. Is there anything that you would like to say to anybody that's listening now and anybody that's going to listen before we head on out of here? Well, I'm going to touch on the website real quick, and then I'll get to that. 
there is a lot of good merchandise you can get there. There's masks. There's the DVD, of course. There are a lot of 8x10s, posters, uh, football cards, uh, a lot of great things that you can get on there. They'll all be autographed. Uh, there's instructions. Everything's done through PayPal. Uh, but uh, as to what I would like to say, first and foremost, I, I just would want to say, Number one, thank you to you guys for having me on and giving me a forum and an opportunity to talk about things that I've done, be it good or bad, and promote upcoming events in the website. But just to the wrestling fans, uh, several reasons I like to do these events. Number one is you get to see the boys. You get to be around guys that you've literally traveled the world with. But I think next is just the opportunity to be around wrestling fans. Now, I've played college football, a brief stint in the NFL, there are no more loyal, dedicated fans on the face of this earth than wrestling fans. They never forget you. They know more about our careers than we do. We've been hitting the head a lot, and through uh, other reasons, sometimes the memory gets foggy and you can't remember certain things. But these wrestling fans are phenomenal. They remember towns, matches, times that they've met you, and, and, and they're, they're just wonderful people. And I always enjoy being at these events where I can just sit down one-on-one -on -one and talk to them and spend some time with them, and I'm very grateful for each and every one of them because without a, without a fan wanting the product and wanting to see what we did, there's no us. And uh, it's the people that pay their hard-earned money, hard -earned money uh, to go to the matches, to buy our merchandising, to see us and. I enjoy being around them, and I'm very, 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 from the bottom of my heart, thankful for them. Awesome, awesome. And, Dell, we are very, very grateful that you decided to join us for what is giving you two hours of your time this evening. Um, um, we are getting close to the two-minute mark, um, so we are about to head on out of here. Um, what I'm going to do is is, is I'm going to say uh, I'm going to go ahead and say so long. I mean I'm, I'll be on the line, but I am Stony. Uh, make sure you check out uh, this show on gwhnewsandnote.blogspot.com as well as all their other shows supporting wrestling, wrestling history, and of course, Will. Say bye, Will. Bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs> and then and then I'm going to toss it over to Mike and let Mike go ahead and finish it up, and I'd let you and Dell just go ahead and finish it up in this last minute thirty. Last minute thirty. Well, Dell, it, it was a great talking to you. Hopefully, uh, hopefully our podcast here will be around and we can get you back on. Um, and honestly, not going to keep you, man. I wanted to just say thanks for coming on. Uh, you were actually our first live guest. Uh, it went pretty well, and. Um, other than that, man, just tell Kathy uh, hello from Augusta from all of us, and it was great having you on. Well, I appreciate it, and I'll, uh, I'll make sure to let Miss Wilkes know. And uh, uh, she's very active on social media. She, she, she does a good job of that and has done a wonderful job in helping me with that and get adapted to it and knowing how to use it. But uh, I enjoyed it. It's been a fun two hours, and uh, I appreciate you guys having me on. Thank you, Dale. Thanks, guys. All right.